<laughs> it's not a bad idea for today, is it? It is cold and it is wet and in here it just doesn't matter, does it? We've got the heat on, we've got the lights on, it's bright in here and it's Easter Sunday, part three. <laughs> Thank you for this. Let me rush it back here. As we've talked about for the past couple of weeks, the Easter season and the Easter message really is too important to be confined to a single day. And for centuries, the church has known it. And they have realized and celebrated that by allocating a series of seven Sundays to the celebration of Easter. 49 days spread between Resurrection Sunday and Pentecost morning. And so we want to continue to drill down deep into the Easter message. And we're going to be again this morning in the Gospel of John. If you have your Bibles, and I really hope that you do, if not, grab one in the, uh, in the lap of the person beside you or the chair in front of you, and turn with me to John chapter 21. This is a marvelous, kind of ordinary in one sense, but extraordinary account in, in the other. It's a beachside barbecue with the resurrected Jesus. I mean, how much more quaint and yet wondrous could it be? John chapter 21, beginning at verse 4, early in the morning... Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize yet that it was Jesus. He called out to them and said, friends, do you have any fish? No, they answered. And so Jesus said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and then you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then Jesus, and then uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved said, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is in fact the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish. They weren't far from shore, about a hundred yards or so. And when they landed, they saw a fire, burning coals with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. And Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. And it was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because now they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came, took bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. As Jesus had to ask him three times, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, Feed my sheep. 
For I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands. Someone else will dress you and they may lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Pause just a moment and pray. God, in the ordinary details of a beachside breakfast, help us to see the extraordinary encounter with the risen Lord. And God, we want to see it not just as an act in the pages of history, but as as a very real possibility, pregnant with opportunity and meaning for each of us today, gathered in this place. God, we know there's a reason we're here today. Not just routine, not just habit, but that there's something that you need to say to us, something that you need to speak into our lives, something you need to do for us. And so through your spirit, let it come, let it happen today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Fascinating passage, John 21. I think because of its, its ordinariness. I mean, you would expect in the wake of the resurrection that there would be grand parades and, and triumphant celebrations and, and, and just monumental receptions happening in the, in the palatial courtyards of, of the Jerusalem temple. But no, here we are way back in Galilee, in, in the middle of nowhere, on the same beach where it all started, with the same ordinary men that it started with. Fascinating passage. A few years ago... Uh, Anne Rice. Do you know Anne Rice? Yeah? Are you allowed to know Anne Rice and admit it in the church? Of course you are. Interview with the Vampire and, and all of those books which became movies. Very dark. Um, uh, a, a dark sense of fiction and a dark sort of worldview. She made a fairly high, highly publicized change and, and a conversion to historic Christianity. And people wondered, I mean, you, with, with your penchant for, for fiction of darkness and vampire mythology, what is it that prompted this activity? She went on the Charlie Rose show, and, and Rose put it to her pointedly, and she said, you know, one of the main reasons is that I read a book by N.T. Wright called The Resurrection of the Son of God. Now, this is a, this is a monstrous book. I, I meant to bring it to the stage, but it's too heavy. It's 890 pages. It is a huge, huge scholarly treatise on the impact of the resurrection. There have to be easier ways to come to salvation than that. But this was the journey for, for Anne Rice. In that book, and, uh, and years ago I, I read it. It took me a year, but I made it sort of a daily pilgrimage. One of the things I remember very clearly is what a strong case Wright makes for this passage and passages like it in the Gospels. And he says that there is, there's absolutely no way, according to scholarship and, and historians agree, that passages like this fit the pattern of mythology or legend. Not made up. Here's some quick examples. He says, notice when they brought the fish. 
there were how many fish? 153. Interesting little detail. Why 153? Well, if it were fiction, if it were legend, if it were made up, wouldn't you pick a number that had some grand symbolic meaning? Seven or 70, 12 or 100. These numbers that have such symbolic history in the Bible. 153. Scholars have poured over that number now for 20 centuries. And you know what they've come up with? Nothing. It doesn't mean anything except this. It's eyewitness memory. There's no other reason to have it there than that there were 153 fish. It's the kind of small detail that brings reality to the story. Here's another one. If you're about to jump into the water, what would you tend to want to do first? You'd take off some clothes, right? Look what Peter does. Before he jumps out of the boat, he puts on his coat. What a curious little detail. Why would you do that? Except that it's a bit of reality they actually captured. So if it happened, if it happened, maybe the more important question is, what does it mean? What does the whole passage mean? What is it that John, at the end of his gospel, is trying here to teach? He actually says at the very end, you know, there's tons and tons of things that Jesus did. And I could tell you all about them, but I can't fit them into this one book. So if there are tons and tons of things that he could select from, and he selected this thing, why is it that he's picked this? What is he trying to teach? You remember the great triumphant message of Easter. You remember what it was, Easter morning? The kingdom of God has come. Or the Twitter version, up there has come down here. That, that the reality of the kingdom, that sphere where, where God's will, God's design, God's purposes, His goodness, all of these things reign supreme and they're available to ordinary people like you and like me, that that has come. That that, that message, the kingdom of God has come, is an abstraction unless somehow it becomes concrete. That's what this passage does. It makes it concrete. It shows the coming of Jesus, the kingdom. And in the coming of Jesus, it shows how we can be reconciled to other people. And it shows how we can be reconciled inside to ourselves. And it shows how we can be reconciled to God. If you have your notes, they're in the back of your bulletin. I'll ask you to pull them out and, and look at each of those and notice the way that they build on each other. We can be reconciled to other people because we're reconciled to who we are, to ourselves. We can be reconciled to ourselves because we are reconciled to God. Each one is dependent on the other. Let's look at the first one. Back in chapter 21, verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. The disciples didn't yet realize that it was Jesus. Isn't this remarkable? This is the third time now Jesus has appeared to him. They still don't see him. Now, now, maybe it's off in the distance. Maybe it's foggy. Maybe they're not really paying attention. Maybe there's something about the resurrected body of Jesus that they just don't quite recognize. Whatever it is, though, they don't identify him with him immediately. Now, who is it that's in the boat? Seven disciples. Have a look there. Been fishing all night. You actually see them mentioned by name in the first three verses. We didn't read them. You have Simon Peter, you have Thomas, Nathaniel, the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, literally the sons of thunder. I'd like to be the dad. Hey, my name's Thunder. 
the two sons of thunder, and two other disciples, not named specifically. They all went out to fish. They fished all night. They didn't catch anything. Um, fishing isn't recreational for these guys. I mean, if you go out, if, if you're a recreational fisherman and you fish all morning, don't catch anything, it's okay because you still got the putter along in your boat and you had your cooler full of pop and, and you had your sandwiches and you had a nice relaxing time. But for them, this is a different deal entirely. They went out and they came back and they had nothing and they're exhausted and they're frustrated. And then they hear this voice from the beach and says, try one more time. Throw the net in on the other side. And they cast it in and there's this enormous catch of fish. Deja vu, right? Deja vu. They've been here before. They've heard that voice before. They've had that command before. Luke chapter 5 and the other Gospels tell the time when early in the relationship, the master appears first to the disciples and asks them to do just that. Try it one more time. And it's in that moment that the lights go on for John. John, the author of the Gospel. This is the Lord, he says. And he grabs everybody else. Stop what you're doing. This is the Lord. What is it that we learn here? Have a look for a minute at the people in the boat. John, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel. And, and remember with me through the stories in the gospel who these people were. Nathaniel. Nathaniel's a credulous person. He's a person who believed. He, he believed almost too easily. He's... He's easily taken in. There are those kind of people, right? Almost superstitious. When Jesus first meets him, Jesus says, Nathaniel, I saw you sitting under a fig tree. We have no idea what Nathaniel was doing sitting under a fig tree. But as far as Nathaniel was concerned, that was absolutely a secret. Nobody could have known what he was doing under the fig tree. And yet somehow Jesus knew about it. And so when Jesus says, I knew about it, Nathaniel says, this is some kind of mysterious supernatural knowledge <laughs> not just that he happened to have seen him walking by but this is supernatural knowledge he turns to jesus and he says rabbi you are the king of israel and jesus says boy if you already think i'm the king of israel just based on that you haven't seen any of the miracles any of the wonders you are easily impressed and then he goes on to say you will see much greater things than these but for Nathaniel, it didn't take much. He's, uh, he's easily impressed. He's a credulous person, quick to believe. Maybe too quick to believe. I don't know. On the other side, also in the boat, you have Thomas. Thomas is not superstitious. He's substitious, if that's a word. He's, he underbelieves. He's hard-headed. He's inclined to want to doubt. I always thought, you know, how lucky it is for Thomas. Thomas says, I'm not going to believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead unless I actually see his hands with the nail prints still in them. The holes should still be there. Think about it for a second. I'm not an expert on raising people from the dead. But to me, it's entirely possible to imagine that if you're raised from the dead, the wounds that cause death might actually be gone. Nathaniel is betting everything on this, that the wounds would still be there. Otherwise, the person in front of him wouldn't convince him it would all be a hoax. He's lucky here. I mean, he could have missed the Savior of the universe. It just happened to be that he was asking for something that it turns out was true of Jesus. Thomas is a realist, maybe a bit cynical. He's got his doubts. But he's in the boat together there with Nathaniel. Nathaniel and Thomas together. Nathaniel's and Thomas's usually 
don't get along. Think about it in our world. The blue parties, the blue political parties, they're filled with Thomases who think that the red parties are filled with Nathaniels who are credulous, believe anything. Nathaniels think of the secular, skeptical Thomases and they say, you're ruining the culture. But here they are. They're lumped in together in the boat. And then there's John and Peter. What do we know about them? John's a rationalist. He's the first one who crunches all the data and says, this is Jesus. He's the first one to think it, but he doesn't do anything about it. Peter, who, by the way, isn't, isn't actually pictured in Scripture as figuring things out quickly at all. He's just the first one to act. Impulsive, impetuous Peter, the first one to do something about it. He jumps out of the boat before they're ever to shore. He swims, runs, wades, whatever, to the beach. Oh, Peter's and, and John's, they don't always get along. Peter thinks John's a coward, always wanting to form another committee to study the issue a bit longer before they do anything about it. John thinks Peter's impetuous. He's a hothead. And so on. And yet, here they are in the boat together. The Bible says over and over again, and a lot more strongly than here, Ephesians 2, for example, that Jesus Christ can and will bring people together. The most unlikely of people across racial divides, generational divides, temperamental divides, class divides, gender divides, every possible divide. I was at the back and, and for a moment when I, I wasn't lost in worship, because the worship was beautiful this morning, I was lost in the view of the stage. Uh, a brilliant septuagenarian, semi-operatic singer standing next to a young Filipino mother, standing next to, well, a Latin American expatriate now returned to Canada, being backed up by an East Indian bass player and a Filipino lead guitar, all being directed by a Scarberian. <laughs> and the steady percussive beat of, for the first time on drums, the one young, normal, abnormal Canadian Caucasian. There's nothing normal about you, Stephen. You're absolutely a rarity here, but welcome. I mean, Jesus brings together people who would otherwise have no reason to be together, who sometimes in other settings might despise each other, who would choose to have nothing to do with each other at all. Jesus brings them together into a unity that creates wisdom. We enrich each other. Jesus Christ will do that. Jesus has done that. He's been doing that here now for 44 years. There is a human unity across all of these great divides. It's available nowhere else. That's what the Bible says, that we can be reconciled with each other. Before we leave that, I had one other thought this week, and, and I love the song that we, we sang just before the sermon, because really it's a creed. The church for centuries, for 2,000 years, has celebrated what it believes in these simple statements of faith called creeds. The, the Probably one of the oldest, one of the most remarkable, one of those widely shared is called the Apostles' Creed. Christians have been praying it together now for well nigh 1,700 years. 
It starts off this way. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. Good starting point, right? It all starts with faith in God, the source, the destiny of all things. It goes on to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, descended into hell, and the third day He rose from the dead. Boy, if we were in a Presbyterian church, you'd all be saying that with me. And there it is. The Gospel story reduced to three sentences. And yet the creed isn't done yet. It has one more statement to make. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, the life everlasting. Amen. Baptists can at least say that, right? Amen? Amen. Let's look at that one little sentence. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Do we believe that? You better believe we do. The Holy Catholic Church. The word Catholic means universal. It doesn't belong to one denominational structure. R.C., Roman Catholic, okay, but Catholic, small c, means a church that is sanctified, made pure, made universal. We believe in that. We believe that's the reality of the reconciling work of God among His people. It means that, that among the things that, that we're being asked to hold tightly to is not just a belief in God the Father, not just a belief in Jesus, the cross, the resurrection. We ought to believe in the church. We ought to believe that what the Bible says about the church is true. That it's a supernatural thing, a thing of beauty, a thing of possibility, of power. It offers a unity, a, a belonging, a, a hope. We ought to act as if it's true. We ought to ask that God create that kind of amazing supernatural community here and when He creates it, do everything that we can to preserve it. You know, Canadians, we have, we have a hard time with that part of the Christian faith. You know that, right? If you ask pollsters... Uh, they would say that the majority of Canadians, when asked about faith, would say something typically Canadian like this. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I can believe in God, but I don't believe in the church. But they go together. Somehow they go together. The church is a supernatural thing, a community. It's the place where we're reconciled to each other. Believe it. It's a scary thing to believe. But believe it. Move through to the second point in your notes. I think one of the reasons that we don't see the beauty, the strength of that community, the church, the reason we don't always see people being reconciled is that to a great degree, we're not reconciled to who we are in ourselves. We're not reconciled to the reality of who we are. James chapter 4, remember we looked at James last year, says that fighting on the outside comes from fighting on the inside. Boy, that's profound. If you can't be transparent with yourself, if you, if you can't admit who you are, how can you be transparent in your relationship with others? All of us, without God's help. We live these lives that are illusory. We spend our lives trying to prove to others, to ourselves, that we're something other than what we really are. 
We can't admit our flaws. We don't want to admit our weaknesses. We can't admit our brokenness to each other, to ourselves. And because we can't be transparent to ourselves, we can't be transparent to others. Unless we're reconciled to the reality of who we really are. Unless we we see ourselves for who we are. It's almost impossible to be deeply connected with another person. Jesus can change that. The case study here is Peter, and what a case it is. Before we take a look at how Jesus heals Peter, let's remember what happened. You remember the story? You heard it as we read through the Gospel of John. At the end of Jesus' life, all the disciples let Jesus down, all of them. But Peter's betrayal of Jesus was particularly grievous for, for several reasons. Firstly, Peter was part of the inner circle. That triad, the group of three, Peter, James, and John, Jesus' closest confidants on earth, he depended on them more than any other. Secondly, Peter was the one who was most out of touch with his own reality, so unable to know who he was, so needing to keep himself, the image of himself, as a strong person. He was the only one who absolutely insisted that no matter what, he would never fall away. It's one place where Jesus is trying to say, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be taken, you're all going to fall away. And in Matthew 26, 33, Peter says, even if all the rest fall away on account of you, I will never, Peter says, I will never do that. I'm ready to go to prison for you, even die for you. Now maybe the other disciples weren't quite so hot spiritually, Maybe they weren't the greatest, but at least they weren't so out of touch with who they are that they say, I don't care if they come with swords. I don't care what they're going to do. I'll go to prison. I'll go with you to death. Notice what Peter says, in fact. He says, I alone, even if all the rest fall away, I alone will not. What's he saying? Jesus, I've been hanging around with these other 11 guys, these characters. I know you love them. I know you do, but none of them have the kind of thing that we've got going on here. We're tight in a way they can't understand. I love you more than these. I will never fall away. And then as you know in the story, Peter very publicly denied Jesus. He's in a courtyard. The trial's going on. He's there with a group of people, soldiers, servants. They're gathered around a fire. Three times they asked him, hey, Aren't you one of Jesus, guys? Aren't you a follower of Jesus? And not just once, which maybe could be chalked up to a bit of a a slip-up or just a blip in courage. Not just once or twice, but three times he says, I don't know the man. Look what Jesus does. John 21, verse 9. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. There were fish on it. Jesus brings Peter back to the fire. The fire where he had first denied. A reminder of the original site of the betrayal. That's not all. Down in verse 15, when they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? See what Jesus is doing? A pointed reminder of the content of the betrayal. Peter said, even if everyone else falls away, I'll love you more than everyone else. I love you more than any of these. And Jesus, instead of just asking him once, asked him three times, 
Simon, you failed me. Peter says, I know. Simon, you failed me. Peter says, I know. Simon, you failed me. I know. He recounts the, the threefold form and the content and the setting as a way of just drilling right down into the, into the psychological, into the emotional reality. Peter, the, this needs to be the end of the denial. Look at who you are. Accept what you've done. That's really twisting the knife, isn't it? Not just once or twice, three times. Absolutely he is. But it's a surgeon's knife. It's, it's not a cutthroat. Every time Jesus says, you failed me. And Peter, instead of making excuses, says, I know. I know. Jesus comes back and, and says what? Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Take care of my flock. All those verbs, all forms of a, of a Greek verb, pomeo, they're the word for pastor, shepherd, leader. You know what he's saying? This is an incredible affirmation. Jesus says, you failed me. Peter says, I know. And Jesus says, okay, now take charge. You're a leader now. Take over. There are seven disciples in the boat. Peter is the most broken He's the one who was most out of touch with who he was. He's the one who most needed to keep the image up. His failure was the greatest, and yet Jesus says, out of the seven, even though your failure is the greatest, you're the leader. You get a sense of what Jesus is saying? You can plunge your failures into my grace, and it'll make you greater than you were before. A greater failure plunged into my grace makes you a greater leader, a greater shepherd. I have a hard time understanding this in the GTA, at least I do, because in the GTA, when you blow it, you don't always get a second chance. Jesus says with me, it's different. In fact, it's the reverse. The more you see your brokenness, the more you plunge yourself into my grace, the more you'll understand other people, the more you'll understand how your own heart works, the more reliant you'll be on me, the less surprised you're going to be about how life goes, the wiser you're going to be. You're in charge. Why? Because you understand failure. And out of your understanding of failure, you understand the need for grace. Let's come back to the points. How can you be reconciled to others? Only when you're reconciled to the reality of who you really are. Your own weakness. How do you get that? What does it mean to be plunged into the grace of Jesus Christ? Sounds like wonderful rhetoric, but... But here it is, the final point. The last thing that Jesus says to Peter is kind of cryptic. takes a bit of thinking, but he says it here in verse 18. I tell you the truth. I think that's an amen coming. Amen. That's his verily, verily. His way of saying, I, I solemnly tell you. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself. You went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and, and someone else will take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God and follow Jesus. See what's being said? In your greeting time, I noticed lots of, lots of handshakes and smiles and 
not a few hugs. You cannot embrace someone without stretching out your arms. When you stretch out your arms, I mean, in order to have physical closeness, physical vulnerability, you, you have to do that. But, but you also make yourself vulnerable to, to anything. A punch in the gut, a slap in the face. You're open to attack. You're not safe. Physical closeness always involves physical vulnerability. So does spiritual closeness, emotional closeness. You want to have closeness with somebody, you have to be vulnerable. You have to stretch out your arms. You have to be willing to be seen for who you are. Willing to be hurt. Willing to accept criticism. There's no such thing as relationship, as closeness without vulnerability. Jesus says to Peter, you're going to be following me, and in following me, you're going to stretch out your arms. Of course, there's also a double entendre here, a double meaning, an intentional one. For the Greek scholars in the room, you would know that that, that language of stretching out your arms is not just an expression of vulnerability, but also a reference to what? Crucifixion. Well, you're quiet this morning. Crucifixion. But here's the other thing Jesus is saying. Peter, I'm going to give you a shepherd's heart. I'm going to give you the kind of heart that's so willing to pour itself out for people that you're even willing to die for them. You're going to build the rest of your life on the pattern of my life and my death. And as I open my arms for you, that will enable to open your arms for other people. How did Jesus do it? Crucifixion. On the cross. The ultimate shepherd, the ultimate friend, giving himself for people who had no ability whatsoever to give anything in return. There was no benefit for Jesus in the crucifixion. How much more vulnerable can you be than to have your arms nailed open? I mean, doesn't that humble you? It, it humbles you to dust. Jesus, the great shepherd, treated us, the lambs, like that. But it also affirms at the deepest level that he loved us, that we're accepted. It fills us up with just what we need in order to open our arms in the same way to other people. That's what Jesus is teaching Peter. Peter, you're going to be so good at this that ultimately you will die for your sheep the way that I died for mine. You'll die for your ministry the way that I died for mine. Did he? Italian historian says that Peter was crucified under Caesar Nero. A.D. 65, and records this one telling detail that a sentence was being carried out, Peter asked to be crucified upside down, not feeling worthy to be, to be executed in the same way that his Savior was for him. Way back in Luke chapter 5, the first time the fishermen were out in the boat, first time they heard the voice from the beach saying, put down your nets on the other side. The first time the lights went on and, and those ordinary men began to realize there was something extraordinary about Jesus. Peter says to Jesus, 
depart from me. That's the old personality. That's, that's what we're all born into. I don't like to see my flaws. I, I don't like to see my limits, my brokenness. My whole self-image is based on the idea of me being a good person, a, a cool person, an achieving, sensitive person. And I can't stand to be in the presence of something so holy that it reveals another part of me. Depart from me. This time they hear the same voice from the beach saying the same thing. Put down the nets on the other side. Peter's there again. This time he doesn't say anything at all. He doesn't say depart from me. What does he do? He runs like a madman towards Jesus. Why? Because who he is has been restructured by grace. If you're a sinner who has been saved by grace, then, then failure isn't a means of catastrophe or psychological death. It's a means of, of renewal and growth. You plunge your failure into his grace. You become more effective. You become wiser, more loving. You get a shepherd's heart. I guess that's where I want to leave us this morning with the same opportunity to hear a voice crying out to you in the distance and, and with the choice, depart from me? Or, or would you run towards Him the way Peter did? Don't let anything stop you. Keep your eyes fixed on Him. See what it says here? One of the most comic spots in all of the Bible where the account ends. Peter turned. After all of this had just happened, he saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? What about John? Jesus had just said, Peter, you're in charge. But it's also going to cost. Peter, you're the shepherd but you're going to die for your sheep. Peter says, but what about him, Lord? What about him? Jesus responds, Peter, for the last time. You don't need to compare yourself to anyone else. I have a plan for him. You don't know it. You may never know it. As Aslan says in the Chronicles of Narnia, I never tell you the other person's story. I only tell you your own. You have no idea what's fair or not fair. You don't know what they've been through. You don't know what it's like to live their lives. Stop looking at them. Look at me. Follow me. Run to him. You come to him all of, all of the small deaths in your life become resurrection. Let's pray to Him now. We thank You, Father, for giving us the kind of encouragement that You've given us. As Jesus Christ has come, we can live lives of reconciliation. And Lord, there are those in this room that we need it. We need to accept who we are to see our beauty and to see our limits, to have the beauty of our lives just cascade into focus because of who made us and what we've done and
the same time, Lord, to be able to have you deal with all the things that have so hobbled us and kept us down. God, some of us, we need to be reconciled to others. The relationships that that grieve us, and we know they grieve you. So we want to run open-armed into the world with a shepherd's heart. Try and make it right. God, we know the only way we can do it is because you've made it right for us. Help us to apply what you've shown us here in our lives through your Holy Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.